Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. In the issue for winter 1966, the Book Collector published an article written by Simon Noel Smith entitled Firma Tauschnitz, 1837-1900. to It is read here by James Fleming. In 1837, Victoria became Queen of England. In the first year of her reign was passed the world's first International Copyright Act, empowering the Queen in Council to assent to reciprocal copyright conventions with other countries. In 1837 also, the firm of Bernhard Tauschnitz, a name destined to become more widely known among English reading people than that of any other publishing house, was founded in Leipzig. Christian Bernhard Tauschnitz, later the Freiherr von Tauschnitz, came of landed Saxon stock. His father being dead, he was apprenticed to his uncle, Karl Tauschnitz, printer and publisher of Bibles and ancient classics, reputed to have set up the first stereotyping plant in Germany. Karl died in 1836. Next year, Bernhard, the nephew, aged 20, established his own printing and publishing firm, and laid plans for entering the continental market for cheap reprints of English books in the English language. From the start, he had his eye on the growing movement in the United States, as well as on the continent and in Britain, towards international copyright, and on the advantage of being early in the field with copyright editions. But nine years were to pass before Tauschnitz could register copyright of a British book in Germany. Queen Victoria's Act had proved abortive. No conventions with other countries were approved until after a further act in 1844. The first were with German states in and after 1846, followed by others with France and Italy in 1852 and 1861. The Bern Convention of 1887 extended reciprocal copyright throughout most of Europe except Russia, but the United States entered into no international commitment before 1891, and then only on its own terms. Tauschnitz, however, was not to be kept waiting. His collection of British authors made its debut in September 1841 with Bulwer's Pelham by the end of 1842. Besides earlier authors, the collection included 12 novels by Bulwer-Lytton, three by Captain Marriott, two titles each by Dickens and Fenimore Cooper, and one by J.P.R. James. Other books by these writers followed in the early months of the next year. There is no evidence that Tauschnitz had any contact as early as this with any of his British or American authors, or with their British or American publishers. In the summer of 1843, on the 9th of July, the following paragraph appeared under a London dateline in the Leipziger Zeitung. In the last few days, a German publisher, Herr Bernhard Tauschnitz of Leipzig, has concluded agreements for continental editions of English works in their original language, authorised by the authors, a first step towards recognition of English literary copyright on the German book market. It is understood that three new books, by Bulwer, James and Lady Blessington, have already been given to Herr Tauschnitz to publish. An editorial note added, The editor has just seen the announcement of these works in the Börsenblatt.
There is therefore no doubt that this agreeable news is true. It was true indeed. Tauschnitz had visited London, had had conversations with Longmans and other publishers, and had addressed a letter to a number of English authors in the following terms. The wish to publish the editions of new English works, which I am bringing out in Germany, with the authority and sanction of the authors, is the reason for my now addressing you. Allow me, however, to remark that I, as well as any other publisher in Germany, have at present the right to embark in such undertakings without any permission from the authors, and that my propositions arise solely from the wish thereby to make the first step towards a literary relationship between England and Germany, and towards an extension of the rights of copyright, and to publish my editions in accordance with these rights. I therefore beg to offer you. For this, you will give me your authority for publishing my edition for the continent. I do not in any way claim the right of sending my edition to England or to your colonies, and I will not in any way attempt to hinder the sale of the English original editions in Germany. I cannot doubt that you will immediately accept my offer, and I hope that this first attempt to establish a connection with the classical authors of England will lead to a long and advantageous relationship on both sides. The former contract which Tauschnitz offered at this time read, It is agreed between Lady Blessington and Mr. Bernhard Tauschnitz of Leipzig that Lady Blessington will give to Mr. Tauschnitz her express sanction to publish an edition in English of her future works and that Lady Blessington will give no similar sanction to any other German publisher. Among the authors who accepted Tauschnitz's offers in the next few months were not only Bulwer, J.P.R. James and Lady Blessington, but Dickens and Disraeli, Harrison Ainsworth and Charles Lever. Between that summer of 1843 and the autumn of 1846, by which time Britain's conventions with Prussia and Saxony had been ratified, Tauschnitz published upwards of 40 volumes with the authority of the British authors or their publishers. Most Tauschnitz volumes, early and late, bear on their title pages or elsewhere in the volume some such words as author's edition, authorised edition, edition sanctioned by the author for continental circulation, or copyright edition. It might be supposed that these phrases carried different and precise meanings, that authorization by an author or his assign began in 1843, and that there could be no continental copyright edition of a British book before 1846, or of an American book before 1891. The long run of early Tauschnitz volumes in the British Museum, a run not inquired until many years later, lends support to this theory. For example... In 1842, before his London visit, Tauschnitz printed no assertion of Marriott's authorization of Percival Keane. In the next year, after the visit, Marriott's Monsieur Violet is sanctioned by the author, and in 1846, his Privateersman is copyright. Most American books are authorized, or, as with one of Irving's, published for the continent of Europe by contract with the author. Hawthorne's Transformation, 1860, is copyright, presumably because, having secured British privilege by residence, Hawthorne could claim continental privilege. Yet the pattern does not always work out like that. How is it that the B.M.'s Pickwick, 1842, 
and A Christmas Carol 1843 are designated copyright editions at a time when no British author could claim copyright abroad. This brings us up against a shockingly bad habit, bibliographically speaking, of the good baron, a habit that neither he nor his son ever grew out of. He would date his first printing correctly, though even to this there are exceptions, and he would then repeat the original date in impressions and even in revised editions printed many years later. The wrappers of a Tauschnitz volume often advertise books published years after the title page date. Sometimes the wrappers themselves bear the later date. An extreme example, given in the bibliography of American literature, is the Library of Congress copy of Marion Crawford's Saracinesca, dated 1887, in wrappers dated 1927. It is easy to assume that the sheets were printed at the earlier date and wrapped and issued later, but this cannot often be disproved, or at least as far as the prelims are concerned, by a list on the half-titled verso of books by the same author, which the author had not even thought of writing at the date given on the facing page. Nor is it safe to assume that the text sheets were printed from plates made from type set at the ostensible date. Of Oliver Twist, for example, Tauschnitz printed an edition in 1843, including the introduction which Dickens had published in London two years earlier. But Professor Kathleen Tillotson, editing the copy for the Clarendon Dickens, failed to find a complete copy. All the copies traced were indeed dated 1843, but all contained the text that Dickens revised, and the new preface that he wrote for publication in London in 1867. One such copy, to judge by its list of Dickens' works, cannot have been printed before 1880. Bound into this copy were the preliminary leaves of an older edition, printed in a different type and including the original introduction. But the title page of this relic carries the legend Copyright Edition, which ought to mean that it belongs to an impression printed after 1846 of a first Tauschnitz edition of 1843. One day, on this theory, a copy sanctioned by the author should turn up. Only after seeing the BM's copy of Pickwick, dated 1842, but with the legend Copyright Edition, did I find the copy in Bodley, which has no such legend, is certainly earlier, and was almost certainly unauthorised. Among exceptions to the rule that Tauschnitz's original title page dates are correct, Percy Muir has pointed out in the book collector, for 1955, pages 253-4 to and 329, that the three volumes of the Tauschnitz David Copperfield were dated 1849, though the second and third could not have appeared. Dickens had not finished writing them, before the spring and autumn respectively of 1850. The reason for adhering to the earlier date for all three volumes may originally have had something to do with the requirements of registration under Saxon or Prussian law, the title page dates being the date of first registration of the title. This possibility remains to be investigated. Tauschnitz evidently set some of his editions of Dickens, volume by volume, from the monthly parts published by Bradbury and Evans. He did the same with Thackeray's Pendennis, and he printed Trollope's Lady Anne from installments of The Fortnightly, 
in each case misdating, by normal bibliographical standards, the last volume. In fact, it is a little more complicated than that. Both Dickens and Thackeray, in certain instances, arranged not for the completed monthly instalments, but for proofs to be sent to Leipzig. With David Copperfield, Dickens promised proofs of Part 6 to Tauschnitz in October 1849, with a view to the publication of Tauschnitz's first volume in that month. He asked Bradbury and Evans to mark his corrections carefully on the proofs. It is always possible that the text of such marked proofs, as reprinted by Tauschnitz, differs from the text as published by Bradbury and Evans, if, that is, Dickens made later corrections before his monthly parts went finally to press in London. Editors of Dickens cannot escape the possibility, the fear, indeed the hope, that some Tauschnitz volumes may contain variant readings. In his jubilee year of 1887, the firm published a Festschrift. It was prepared by the first Baron's son, Christian Karl Bernhard von Tauschnitz. It is a solid octavo volume of 344 pages, by far the greater part being given up to the collection of British authors. It contains, among other information, extracts of letters from some 30 authors dead by 1887. A briefer festschrift celebrating the firm's 75th birthday contains extracts from authors who died before 1912. And an even briefer festschrift carries the tally down to the centenary year of 1937. The correspondence ranged from Dickens and Thackeray and George Eliot, Carlyle and Froude and Macaulay, through Tennyson and Meredith and Ouida, to writers of 1937 who sent centenary tributes. Wells and Walpole and Somerset Maugham, Stanley Baldwin and Lord Halifax and John Masefield. The extracts were almost without exception, flattering to the firm of Tauschnitz and to the two barons and to their successors. Inevitably, because these were festschriften. No doubt there were letters of another colour, but there is overwhelming evidence of the respect, often the affection, with which the founder was regarded by his English authors. The evidence is to be sought in the letters of authors and publishers to other correspondents referring to Tauschnitz. Unfortunately, all the many hundreds of letters preserved by the firm, together with their stock of publications, stereotype plates and printing plant, were destroyed in an air raid on Leipzig in 1943. The best-known example of a personal relationship concerns Dickens, who entrusted his 16-year-old son Charlie to the Tauschnitz family for some months in 1853 to learn German. Charlie, Dickens told Tauschnitz, should be treated like a gentleman though pampered in nothing, and assuring Angela Burdett Coutts that Charlie would be in good hands, Dickens wrote that the Chevalier Tauschnitz, and I quote, is a publisher by profession, the largest I believe in Germany, but is a gentleman of great honour and integrity too. I have had many transactions with him, referring to all my books, and I am well acquainted with him personally, and with his thoroughly good reputation besides. Harrison Ainsworth, having revived the ancient custom of the Dunmo Flitch, dedicated his novel, The Flitch of Bacon, to Herr and Frau Tauschnitz, the happiest couple I know. Wilkie Collins dedicated Miss or Mrs. 
to Tauschnitz in cordial remembrance of my relations with him as publisher and friend. George Lewis, in spite of what is yet to be revealed, wrote that both he and Mrs. Lewis, George Eliot that is to say, preserved such agreeable recollections of Tauschnitz that it would at all times be a pleasure to hear from him either on the subject of our books or anything else. The less personal author-publisher relationship involves terms of contract. In the mid-19th century, a publisher might buy a copyright outright or for a stated number of years or editions, or he might publish on commission or on half or three-quarter profits. We take the royalty system so much for granted nowadays that we tend to forget how slowly it evolved. It evolved even more slowly on the continent than in Britain. And it was, so Tauschnitz believed, entirely uneconomic for a cheap series such as his. He seems never to have published an English book on commission or on half profits. It is true that some authors, not included in his collection, wrote to propose themselves for inclusion. But it is unlikely that he would have asked them to bear the initial cost, even if they had been willing. On one occasion, Charles Reed suggested either a fixed sum or a share of the profits. But Tauschnitz chose to buy, it is never too late to mend, outright. Reed was very anxious to be included in what he called Tauschnitz's noble collection. It contains many authors who are superior to me in merit and reputation, but it also contains the entire works of many writers who do not come up to my knee. What the Tauschnitz father and son preferred can be deduced from their correspondence with individual authors. For it was with authors, as the father wrote in a letter to the Times in 1871, that he made most of his agreements, unless they had previously sold their continental rights to their British publishers. Illustrations may be taken from a variety of authors, not in strict chronological order, beginning with Anthony Trollope, whose papers in the Bodleian throw light on several relevant matters. The first thing to note is that before the days of international copyright, although an author might enter into a contract with a foreign publisher, he could not sell the foreign rights in his book. And for some years after the first international conventions, an author might well remain unaware that he had foreign rights to sell. British publishers continued to buy books outright, or for a term of years, without mention of overseas sales. Trollope's agreements with Newby in 1845, with Colburn in 1848, Longman in 1854, and Bentley in 1857 are agreements for outright sale, with no foreign strings attached. With Dr Thorne in 1858, Trollope assigned to Chapman and Hall the copyright and all rights attaching thereto at home and abroad. In the following year, the formula for three other books was the same but with a time limit of three years, after which the copyright was to become the joint property of Trollope and Chapman and Hall. In all these instances, it was open to the publishers to sell the continental rights to Tauschnitz, and they did. In 1860, a similar contract for Orley Farm contains this clause. Any amount resulting from the disposal of sheets of the work to foreign publishers to be the joint property of Mr. Trollope and Messrs. E. and F. Chapman, that is, Edward and Frederick Chapman trading under the firm of Chapman and Hall. When the three-year period has run out, a new agreement stipulates that any receipts from the disposal of sheets to foreign publishers should go to the author. In 1864, 
Trollope reserves to himself the copyright in all foreign countries. Much the same pattern appears in Trollope's agreements with Smith Elder. In 1859, he sells them Framley Parsonage outright, with no mention of foreign sales. In 1861, Smith Elder, by the complete copyright in the small house at Allington, expressly reserving to themselves all profits from the sale of sheets to America and from the assignment of continental rights. In 1863, they buy the serial rights of the Claverings for the Cornhill for a sum which includes the right of disposing for their own advantage of the early sheets for America and also an option on the entire English and continental copyrights. Trollope was content to leave his publishers and negotiate foreign arrangements for their own advantage. He seems to have had no direct contact with Tauschnitz until 1872, when the New York Morning Herald announced that, as a result of a lawsuit, Trollope had extracted large damages from Tauschnitz for infringement of copyright. This was pure fabrication. One result was an exchange of letters between the two men. Trollope wrote, Latterly, in order that I might avoid the trouble of many bargainings, I have sold my novels with all the rights of copyright to the English purchaser, and have therefore given over to him the power of doing what he pleases as to foreign editions. As to the future, I will arrange that the German republication shall be with you. I am so fond of your series that I regret to have a work of mine omitted from it. And in his agreements for The Way We Live Now, 1873, and The Prime Minister, 1874, there are clauses debarring Chapman and Hall from selling the right of republication in Germany to any other firm than that of Baron Tauschnitz of Leipzig. What remains mysterious is that while the Baron had published 22 books by Trollope before 1873, and was to publish more than as many thereafter, between 1873 and 1876, three of Trollope's Chapman and Hall novels, The Eustace Diamonds, Miss Mackenzie, and Phineas Redux, were published on the continent by the rival firm of Asher of Berlin. Caroline Norton inherited a Celtic temperament from her Sheridan forebears. She was an unhappy lady, who had learned from experience the need to fight for her rights and for women's rights generally. Sometimes, on impulse, she fought for imagined rights. In 1851, she sold a three-decker outright to Henry Coburn, and in 1863 and 1867, she sold two other three-deckers to Coburn's successors, Hurst and Blackett. It was stipulated in at least one of these agreements that the publisher could dispose of the books in America and elsewhere. The continental rights in all three novels were sold by the London publishers to Tauschnitz through the intermediary of Sidney Williams of Williams and Norgate, Tauschnitz's London agent. And in 1868, Hurst and Blackett assigned the copyright in the third novel, Old Sir Douglas, to Macmillan's. Three years later, there was an animated correspondence in the Times about piracies and unauthorized editions in the United States, the colonies, and Europe, in the course of which Mrs. Norton wrote, I pass over the publication abroad by Baron Tauschnitz of Leipzig and Galignani in Paris of works provokingly full in every page of errors of type and mistakes of sense in consequence of not venturing to communicate with pirated authors. 
The Times in the next week printed letters from several authors and publishers denying that Tauschnitz was a pirate and testifying to his probity, liberality and accurate printing. Tauschnitz wrote to Mrs. Norton offering to show her his contracts with her London publishers and expressing regret for any errors in her novels. He might have added that the errors in Old Sir Douglas were all in Macmillan's cheap edition, a fact of which Mrs. Norton had complained to Macmillan's three years before. Mrs. Norton, reading carelessly, took Tauschnitz's letter as an apology for piracy and wrote to Williams to say so. She also wrote to Alexander Macmillan about Williams' impudent assertions and unmitigated falsehoods and publicly announced that she would prosecute him for libel. The Times decided to close the correspondence, which is becoming too heated for our columns. The controversy will be best conducted in the cool atmosphere of a court of law. Some of Mrs. Norton's letters are plainly hysterical. In a calmer moment, she did admit to Macmillan that she did not comprehend all these complicated arrangements, meaning the sale of copyrights, and she sold Tauschnitz that she had not known of international copyright or that he paid his English authors. One of her difficulties in dealing with her controversial correspondence was absence from her documents. I am never in London at this time of year. I go from chateau to chateau of friends in Scotland and England, making autumn and winter visits. If I had known the truth about you and your good German heart. Other examples of the author-publisher relationship illustrate authors' dissatisfactions over fees, though I have yet to discover an instance in the 19th century of a dissatisfied author not being won back to happy relations with Tauschnitz and his good German heart. In 1864, Tennyson wrote to Tauschnitz, With respect to my new volume, Messrs. Williams and Norgate write to me asking what sum I require for granting you permission to print it in Germany. I think... I had better leave this matter entirely in your hands. Four years later, Tennyson evidently repented of having accepted Tauschnitz's offer, whatever that offer was. In a letter rather more gracious than the extract might suggest, he wrote, I am quite aware that I made rather a bad bargain with you in selling the continental copyright for so small a sum. And my publisher affirms, whether rightly or not, that I annually lose some hundreds of pounds by this transaction. I am also aware that the royalty you offer me now is all of your free grace and that I have no claim upon you. Whether Tauschnitz offered a royalty as early as 1868 is doubtful. The Poet Laureate may have used the word inadvertently. Relations between poet and publisher remained cordial and Tennyson continued to entrust his continental rights to Tauschnitz. Stevenson was indignant at an offer of only £20 for Treasure Island, which indeed, in retrospect, seems very little. But the book was, after all, a juvenile by a little-known writer, and as Tauschnitz said, rather a small book, filling only one of my cheap volumes. Jan Poor Tauschnitz, if that be his name, Stevenson wrote to a friend, comes between me and my vivas. It's a damn shame, by what I can see, a fair disgrace, and him a common German. Tausch, says you, nits, says I, and gives ye them. That was in April 1884. 
In July, having accepted the £20, Stephen writes to the common German, I am pleased indeed to appear in your splendid collection and thus to rise a grade in the hierarchy of my art. £20 was then, and for some years had been, an average price for the continental rights of a single volume work by a little-known writer. Figures are scarce, but a few can be found. In 1865, the highest fee went to Carlyle, £225 for the last four volumes of Frederick the Great. Next comes Dinah Mulock, Mrs. Craik, that is, at the height of her fame, with £50 each for two one-volume novels. Dickens gets an average of £37.10 and 10 shillings a volume for our mutual friend, Mrs. Henry Wood, £30 a volume for Oswald Cray, Charles Lever, only £30 for the two volumes of Lateral of Aaron, lesser-known writers fared worse. Mrs. Riddle and Annie Thomas, only £12.10 and 10 shillings per volume. Jumping to 1875 to 77, we find Gladstone happy to accept £25 each for three volumes of political essays. If we consider that Gissing and Henry James, established, if doubtfully popular, authors, accepted £25 and £30 from Tauschnitz's Leipzig rivals, Heinemann and Balestia, in the 90s, £20 for Treasure Island in 1884 does not seem so much of a damn shame. A single Tauschnitz volume was priced at 160 marks in Germany or 2 francs in France, the equivalent in the late 19th century of a shilling and sixpence. On the continent, then, the standard bookseller's discount was 50%. But for bulk purchases, Tauschnitz might have to allow even more. Bulk means, in this context, not a large number of copies of a particular title, but a mixed bag of new and popular old books for, shall we say, Achette to display on their railway bookstores throughout France. Achette, besides being publishers and wholesale booksellers, had for many years the sort of monopoly of railway bookstalls in France that W.H. Smith enjoyed in England. How many copies Tauschnitz printed whether of long-selling novels like Dickens, or of short-lived novels like Annie Thomas's, or of speculative newcomers like Stevenson, is not known. But he must have reckoned that the assured sale of an average book lasted only about two years. A sale of 2,000 copies at a shilling and sixpence represents a retail total of £150. If you deduct a trade discount of 50%, and, for the sake of illustration, a royalty of 10%, the author gets £15 and the publisher is left with a total of £60 to cover production, advertisement, overheads and his own profit. Not a very large margin. If he bought the continental rights outright for £20, his margin on 2,000 copies was even smaller. If the book succeeded, on the other hand, over a long term of years, he stood to make a fair even a large profit. Two writers who find, whose financial dealings with Tauschnitz can be followed in detail are George Eliot and Mrs. Humphrey Ward. In 1858, George Eliot accepted £30 for the two volumes of her first work of fiction, Scenes of Clerical Life. Next year, she refused the same sum for Adam Bede. And Williams and Norgate wrote to Blackwood, her Edinburgh publisher, 
that Tauschnitz was so anxious to have the book that he would pay £50 if the author insisted. The impudence with which Williams and Norgate try it on for Tauschnitz, George Lewis wrote, is to me amazing. For the mill on the floss, Williams and Norgate offered £80, but were forced up to £100, that is, £50 a volume. In the mid-sixties, George Eliot and Blackwood, like some other authors and publishers, came to question whether Tauschnitz's cheap editions did not injure the sale of ordinary English editions. At first, they refused to allow Felix Holt to be published in Leipzig. However, some months after Felix Holt had appeared in Britain, George Eliot was in Paris. She found in Society there a deep regret that the book was not in the Tauschnitz collection the only medium by which the English text of English novels can get known on the continent. Four years later, in 1871, Tauschnitz, who had for some time enjoyed a virtual monopoly on the continent, found his supremacy challenged. Albert Cohn, of the Berlin firm of Asher, inaugurated Asher's collection of English and American authors, copyright editions. The very first volume in the new series was the first of eight volumes of George Eliot's Middlemarch. Ashes had agreed to pay a royalty, not a lump sum. I fancy we have done a good turn to English authors generally by setting off Ashes' series, George Eliot wrote to Blackwood, for we have heard that Tauschnitz has raised his offers. And a year later, Bad Homburg, she observed that Asher's cheap editions are visible everywhere by the side of Tauschnitz, adding, their outside is not, I think, quite equally commendable and recommending. The Asher collection, transferred from Berlin to the firm of Gredner and Richter in Hamburg, was a serious threat to Tauschnitz. It seduced, in its first year, Miss Braddon, Miss Broughton and Ouida. But its life was brief. In ten years, it ran to 200 volumes, compared with nearly 1,000 from Tauschnitz in the same period. Miss Braddon, Miss Broughton and Ouida quickly returned to the Baron. So, with Daniel de Ronda in 1876, did George Eliot. The early 90s witnessed the fall of the House of Asher. The firm at Tauschnitz stood firm for 50 years to come. The figure of 2,000 copies for an average possibly ephemeral book in the 1860s to 1880s, was not taken altogether at random. Firm evidence of the sale of one Tauschnitz book names a little more than twice that figure. But the book was a bestseller in two continents, and the date is the early 90s. In roughly two years, the sales in England of Mrs. Humphrey Ward's David Grieve were about 80,000 copies. In America... 60,000 copies, and in the colonies, about 10,000 copies. Tauschnitz, in the same period, sold 4,400 at a loss. He had paid dearly for the copyright, £100 a volume, and would only break even, he told Mrs. Ward, if sales reached 5,000. Yet, as he wrote, after the elapse of two and a quarter years, the continuation of the sale is of no importance anymore. In other words, sales had virtually stopped short of four and a half thousand. Mrs. Ward was of the type of author whom publishers call greedy. Though she knew that Tauschwitz was out of pocket over David Grieve, 
she asked for her next novel, Marcella, either the same sum, £300, or £250 on advance of a 15% royalty. The younger Tauschnitz, who, like his father, thought royalties quite unsuitable to cheap series and regarded 15% as excessive, was able to point out to her that if she had a 15% royalty on David Grieve up to the time when sales fell off, she would have received only £160 instead of the £300 which he had paid her. They compromised on £250 down from our seller, with £50 more to come if 5,000 copies should be sold. The fees for these two books were exceptional. In 1888, Tauschnitz had paid £60 for the three volumes of Robert Ellesmere, which he thought, before its fantastic success, unlikely to have any wide appeal on the continent. But he agreed to make a further payment if sales warranted. He had done the same with Shorthouse's John Inglesant. In due course, Mrs. Ward received an extra £30. But between Robert Ellesmere in 1888 and David Grieve in 1892, Tauschnitz's dominance of the European market had again been threatened. In 1889-90, William Heinemann had set up two businesses, one in London, which still bears his name, and the firm of Heinemann and Balestier in Leipzig. Balestier was a young American who died not long afterwards and whose sister was to marry Rudyard Kipling. Heinemann was an energetic young man whose family had come from Hanover who quickly, by offering large royalties, built up a strong list of fiction and general literature in London. For his Leipzig venture, he relied partly on this list and partly on the purchase of continental rights from other publishers. As a result, Tauschnitz was forced to pay higher prices to his authors than before, sometimes higher than sales were likely to justify. He paid them because he could not afford to lose his authors if he was, in the long run, to defeat his competitors. Before the new century was five years old, Heinemann had pulled out of Leipzig. The younger Freiherr von Tauschnitz, with nearly 4,000 volumes to his credit and more than a million stereotype plates in his armoury, was left in undisputed possession of the field. That was James Fleming reading Firma Tauschnitz, 1837-1900, by Simon Noel Smith, published in the Book Collector in the winter of 1966. Why not check out our Great Collectors playlist for more podcasts featuring the biggest names in book collecting and bibliography? Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.